Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Before we get to today's episode, I have an incredibly exciting announcement about our next live podcast event. On Thursday, July 27th, 2023, we're headed to Boston, Massachusetts, where I'm going to host a live podcast conversation with the dynamic husband and wife duo, Vasanth Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis, and Shrishti Gupta Narasimhan, a longstanding physician leader, former McKinsey executive, and board advisor to many companies. This is going to be one for the books. And I know there are many of you out there who wish you could have joined for our other live podcast with Congresswoman Jayapal to our recent episode with Anjula Acharya in New York City. And so I hope that all of you in Boston are able to make it out to this incredibly special event. All the extra details will be on our website at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com where you can get tickets starting today. So excited to see you all there. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Today's guest is Gaurav Shah, co-founder and CEO of Rocket Pharmaceuticals. Rocket Pharma is a company developing first-in-class gene-modified cell therapies to treat rare diseases. Prior to this role, Gaurav was a global program head in the Cell and Gene Therapies Unit at Novartis, where he had oversight of 12 functions and helped spearhead trials for patients with leukemia and lymphoma. His earlier roles at Novartis span being a global clinical program head and a lead physician in several global oncology submissions. Gaurav started his career in industry at Imclone, Eli Lilly, as a medical director overseeing oncology trials focused on monoclonal antibodies. Gaurav graduated from my alma mater, Harvard College, with a degree in behavioral neuroscience. He received his MD from Columbia University, completed his internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and his hematology and oncology fellowship training at Memorial Sloan Kettering. After receiving his board certification in medical oncology, he served as an adjunct assistant professor of oncology at Columbia. But medicine is not all. To find balance, Gaurav has also explored his passion for Indian classical music. And when I say explored, I mean succeeded immensely. He's performed at Carnegie Hall and on National Geographic Television. In 2019, he was nominated for a Grammy alongside his wife for an album entitled Falu's Bazaar. And in 2022, they won the Grammy for Best Children's Album entitled A Colorful World. I'm really excited about this conversation because... I often talk about the range of guests we have on this podcast. It's really wide. It's really diverse. But Gaurav is a prime example of the range our guests have as individuals. Just look at his dual passion for medicine and music and the way he succeeded. With that said, Gaurav, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited for this conversation. Simi, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be on the South Asian Trailblazers episode along with you. Oh, really appreciate that. And it's great to meet you too. You know, if you've had a chance to listen to our podcast, you might know that I like to set the stage by going back to the beginning. And so can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and what it was like growing up as an Indian immigrant in Texas? Were medicine and music always part of the plan? Yeah, I was born in a small town in Gujarat called Dahod. It's not a big city. It's not Bombay. It's not Delhi. It's just a town of 50,000 people. Then now maybe it's 100,000 or so. So it was a very different universe. Came here to Mississippi first when I was three and a half years old. By the time I was five, we had moved to Texas. And I spent from kindergarten to the end of high school in Fort Worth, Texas. I love Fort Worth. Fort Worth is where the West begins, right? And Dallas is where the East ends. Fort Worth was a great melting pot of cultures in those days. Obviously, I was an Indian in a very different state. That state 
has the right to see from the union. It's a very different mindset. However, the friendliness and the warmth of the community, both Indian and non-Indian growing up, was amazing. And, you know, Tejas means friendliness. Oh, I didn't know that. And that set the stage for being creative, being open-minded about life, having a blue sky mindset. You can do whatever you want. We had a lot of space. Texans think big, big sky. Everything is big. So you're always thinking really big. Everything's bigger in Texas, as they say. Everything is bigger in Texas. That's right. I would say that the music part came early. My mother loved to sing. She's not a professional singer, but she loved to sing. And she was singing Hindi songs a lot. And my dad was really interested in not just Bollywood, but a lot of classical music as well. And I remember one day when I was in fourth grade or so, my dad made a comment about Kishore Kumar. I became obsessed with this name, Kishore Kumar. I started listening to that music voraciously. He's still actually my favorite singer who ever lived on earth. And I started trying to sing some songs. I was also influenced starting in eighth grade or so by Guns N' Roses and the Beatles. So there are two parts of the musical world. So it was a real place to put these worlds together in a big way, in a new way. And the medicine part, I think, came a little bit later At some point in high school, I was watching an episode of 2020 where neurosurgeons were stimulating various parts of a patient's brain and could make that person feel something or feel a certain itch or cry. The brain was so connected to who we are, right? And I started becoming fascinated with the brain. And my question was, where does consciousness reside in the body? Interesting. Where in the brain can you find consciousness and awareness and and who we are? Can we find the soul somewhere? So that was my interest in medicine. The interest in medicine and interest in music are somewhat related, right? Because you're looking for something that is transcendent and you're looking for something that's bigger than life. And Indian classical music, I'll just make this real quick comparison because it leads later to what I do here in Rare Disease at Rocket Pharma also. But the focus of Indian classical music is you learn a lot of complexity. You learn hundreds of ragas, right? Melodic scales. And you practice hours and hours a day And you might sing a thousand notes in one sitting. But the point of Indian classical music is not the thousand notes. It's to find that one note. That when you hit that note, you find meaning in life and transcendence. It's the same thing, I think, in medicine, especially in rare disease. So there's, there's some links here. But in the early days, it wasn't planned. It just sort of all came together and, yeah. I want to spend more time later on talking about the synergies and what you do in music and medicine. But I do want to spend a second on you choosing this trajectory in healthcare. In one of our recent episodes with comedian Zarna Gerg, she spoke about how growing up, there are really three career options oftentimes for people in our community, doctor, lawyer, engineering. Did you feel any external parental pressure to pursue medicine? When did you surmise that this was something you wanted to do? It was definitely pressure. (laughs) And I think you're absolutely right. When I was in college, I had an interest in medicine, like I said. I also grew up with Carl Sagan's Cosmos. My dad introduced me to Cosmos. So actually, my first year of college, I was an astrophysics major And I came home during Christmas and I said, hey, I want to be an astronomer or an astrophysicist. And my dad's like, no, that's not for you. It's not practical. (laughs) And so basically nudged me to think a little bit more pragmatically, practically. But I had the interest in medicine already and this fascination with the brain and neuroscience and neurology. So I went along with it and I went to medical school. By the way, I love medicine now, but the process of medicine is very difficult to go through medical school and residency and everything is is not easy, right? I remember the joke once was that I woke up, I was born and I was in anatomy lab. I don't know how this just happened, but I'm in anatomy lab. It just happened. And that was the sentiment for a while. But over time, I really turned that into a passion for drug development, especially in in the rare disease space. Yeah. And so... To that end, you go on to eventually pursue behavioral neuroscience at Harvard, and then you go to medical school at Columbia University. You complete your residency in internal medicine, fellowship in hematology, oncology, neuro-oncology. 
And very shortly thereafter, you actually pivot into industry. You served as a medical director at Eli Lilly and eventually a global program head at Novartis. Why this over, say, practicing at a research hospital? Yeah, between college and medical school, I did take a year off and go to India to study in Indian classical music. So that was a detour that was definitely life-changing. I did my fellowship, and at the end of the fellowship, I'll tell concrete stories here because I think some of them are telling about certain moments. I had been contacted in my last year of fellowship by a venture capital firm, and I'd been working with them, consulting on the side during my last year, which was lighter. It was more of a research year. And I really got fascinated with the early company development learnings that I experienced, just how to build a company, how to think about the science in a pragmatic way, how to think about capital investment, how to think about management teams. I did that for about a year. And then at the same time, I was developing an academic appointment at Sloan Kettering, where I eventually had an offer to help develop the brain metastasis program. Very different universe. That would have been something that would have put me in the trenches of academic neuro-oncology at a premier institution like Sloan Kettering and would have been very rewarding in a different way versus venture capital. But I remember I had these two job offers. One was from Sloan Kettering, one was from industry. It was a company called Imclone, where we worked on antibodies for cancer. I signed both and I went to the mailbox. I didn't know what was going to happen, but my right hand delivered the mail and I never looked back. And that was the the industry job. I had them both signed and I mailed the one intentionally with industry right at the last moment. Knowing that you can always come back to academics and I had a foot in the door, I'd taken an appointment at Columbia to at least see patients a little bit in case there's a chance to come back or a need to come back. But that was a moment and it was life-defining And I wouldn't have it any other way. I I have a lot of friends who are oncologists at Sloan Kettering and they do version of God's work. And I have the utmost respect for them. Sure. But that's their path. And I I chose a different. It was just a moment. It was a gut feel. I signed both and that's what happened. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the formative experiences in industry that made you feel like this was the right path for you? On day two of my job at Imclone, I was sent to this oncology meeting with the intent of developing clinical trials for certain types of ovarian cancer. I remember I went with a marketing person at the time, who's now my friend, Steve Price. And I just started having dialogues that I knew were shaping the field. The folks in industry are writing the guidelines that practicing physicians are following, right? They're developing those trials between thinking creatively about clinical development, how to design a study so that you can address the maximum number of patients with the highest unmet need out there. Thinking creatively about that on our own, together with the scientists, with regulators, with commercial folks, and with physicians who are practicing in the real world. All of that, it was an overwhelming introduction to the creativity that medicine can bring if you harness strengths in the right way. That was day two, and every day I've had in industry has been similar. Now, I'm less involved now in day-to-day clinical development in my job here, which is different in scope, obviously, but I'm rooted in that clinical development. That's what I know. That's what I love. And I always love to go back to that drawing. Yeah. Today, as you alluded to, you run Rocket Pharma, a company developing first-in-class gene-modified cell therapies to treat rare diseases, which, as defined by the FDA, is any disease that affects less than 200,000 people in the U.S. Through your experiences in residency and then in biotech and pharma, when and why did you start to zero in on rare diseases? The interesting thing about rare diseases, each rare disease is rare, but rare disease is not rare. There are about 400 million people on the planet living with a rare disease, about 30 million in the U.S. alone. That's more common than a lot of the killers that we have, like cancer and even cardiovascular disease. And I think that the recognition of that and the impact that one who's in this field can have for a large segment of the population is immeasurable. 
That's one thing. The other thing is that I got into drug development through the door of cancer. There are many cancers that are also rare disease. Not all of them, but many of them are rare diseases as well. So the regulatory pathways and even thinking about how to commercialize these products is not that different between cancer and rare disease. So I trained in cancer. I did my work in cancer, both at Imclone and then at Novartis, a very well-oiled and, and seasoned company. And then I was called by an investment firm here in New York City called RTW with a chance to apply the cell and gene therapy learnings from Novartis and cancer to a host of rare diseases. The first one that we worked on was called pyruvate kinase deficiency, but eventually the pipeline has expanded. So my training for it was there. I was ready to do the work, but the rare disease learning was an opportunity that presented itself here in New York a few years ago. And I, and I, I went with it. But I would say that while at Rocket for the last seven or eight years, we've become so close to patient advocacy groups, patients' families. We try to not be directly involved in patient management. We're not involved in patient management at all, but we try not to be in people's lives so much. We've gotten a chance and an opportunity to get to know a few patients. And the impact that gene therapy can have on certain patients, especially pediatrics, who might only live for a couple of years, you know, that they might not grow up to see their fifth birthday. And seeing that gene wow. therapy has the potential to turn them into 95-year-olds, potentially. This is not therapy. This is cure. It's, it's the first yeah. time in the history of our species that we're not talking about medicine as a therapy, but medicine as a cure, because you're replacing faulty DNA with corrected DNA. And DNA is the essence of who we are as physical beings. So to see that impact in rare disease has been so special and awe-inspiring for me and everyone in the company and I think in the field. So I, I fell into it, but I wouldn't do anything else now. To that end, not very many people pursue medicine necessarily with the intention of becoming physician CEOs or physician founders. Obviously, this opportunity presented itself to you, but did you ever think about the trade-offs of starting your own company versus continuing to operate within a big existing pharma company like Novartis? I sort of always had a little bit of the entrepreneurial itch. Maybe it's an immigrant entrepreneurial itch. Maybe it's the fact that many of our parents left South Asia to pursue something completely unknown. And maybe I felt like I had to try my piece at it. But I think that the decision was, again, opportunistic. There was a time when I was at Novartis and I was asked to go see this RTW fund. I said, okay, reluctantly. Actually, the, the funny story here is that uh, <laughs> I was with my other half, Falu, who's the head of the band, the leader of the band that I'm in. We were performing at Givenchy's inaugural runway show here in New York City in 2015. So I remember the date, September 11th, and someone asked me to go see this guy named Rod Wong, who runs RTW. And as I said, I was in the middle of sound check. And uh, so I put on a, a Givenchy suit. They lended it to me and I went over to the office. And I was in a company of 120,000 with all the infrastructure that you're talking about. It was not just resources and training opportunities, but yeah. sort of a social place where you have a network and and you feel like you're part of a group and that's part of the job as well. You just have so much support. But I'd gone into this meeting with Rod for 15 minutes, turned into a two-hour session. I missed the sound check. And at the end of that meeting, I said, Rod, I feel like I have a brick in my stomach because I feel like I have to do this. It's going to be scary, but I have to do this. So it wasn't so much that I consciously was always trying to do something. It was that itch that was always there, but this opportunity came up. I knew it was right. Sometimes you know the right opportunity is there because that you feel that in your stomach and it doesn't always feel good, but you know you have to do it. I took the risk and became a venture partner at RTW first. And then we raised a Series A for Rocket Pharma. And you know it's just been a great, a great journey, personally and professionally. I'm curious, it seems like gut and intuition seem to play a big role in a lot of the decisions you make. How do you think about that? And the advice that you potentially give to your kids? Yeah. I guess intuition and gut are probably pretty complex, right? 
they're based on everything yeah. you've ever learned and everything you've ever experienced. So it's a lot more complex than one moment. It's not just the moment of mailing one envelope or the other is a coming together of a whole life and... And a whole set of data points. A whole set of data points, a whole community. Like everything weighs into that one moment. I know, and I think neuroscience has proven that decision-making is ultimately emotional. You take all the facts, but at the moment of decision-making, the parts of the brain that light up are the emotional parts. So there's no such thing as a rational decision. You always have to come back to a gut, instinctual, instinctive decision. It's not just me. I think that's probably how most people function. Super interesting. So you're presented with this idea of Rocket Pharma. You join RTW as a venture partner. You raise the Series A. What gap in the market did you identify that compelled you to start Rocket? And also, I'm curious, why gene therapies specifically? The starting of Rocket, I'm a co-founder. I'm not the uh, original investor, which was RTW, who put the seed fund in there, upon which we built a team and raised the Series A in 2016, right? So that was, it was already in place. The decision to build that as a gene therapy company is when you build a company, you want to be able to create proposition for value creation, both near-term and medium-term and long-term. You want to do that with a compelling story, and you don't want to be so diluted and diversified that investors don't see it easily. It has to be a relatively straightforward, easy sort of gene therapy at the time was a blossoming field. There were probably 100 companies that were starting up in 15, 16. Bluebird, we used to be called Mini Bluebird. There's a company called Avexis. There's a company called Spark. So a lot of companies were emerging out of those hundred or so companies, there's probably less than 10 that are still active in clinical trials and moving toward approval. Wow. I don't know the exact number, but it's a very small number. But at the time, it was a very hot field in medicine. And there was a lot of capital being poured into it. So we decided to do gene therapy, but in a different way, which is to start with the end in mind. I'm a physician, as we've talked, the Other founders, Rod, and at the time, Naveen, who are part of RTW, are also physicians. So we think from a physician's hat, not a scientist's hat. So not a science platform, but a medical platform. What what is the patient population that could really benefit from gene therapies? Let's identify them. Let's find enabled technologies that we can refine further to bridge the gap between unmet need and cures. And... Let's start with that end in mind. And I think that's been the reason that we've been able to again and again deliver for investors and for patients on milestones that lead to these drug approvals for each of the gene therapy programs. If we have thought about this another way, this is a science platform and we're going to throw darts in the wall and see what sticks, I think it would be much harder to be successful. But these are real programs with real patients with real unmet need. And it's been a mantra to just continuing to show value creation milestone after milestone for investors. Now I'm speaking with very much of the business hat on, but (laughs) I appreciate it. And that honestly preempts my next question. Can you talk about the early challenges of co-founding Rocket, especially what was unexpected to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I had never raised money. Basically, I had to jump in as a CEO and a CFO, right? I'd never had any experience with Wall Street. I had never pitched a story to raise money. And I had never built a team from scratch. Even at Novartis, I was overseeing a team of 80 people at Novartis, but there was a whole infrastructure in place to make sure that it's done well and it's done the right. So I think the challenges here were how do you hire people with just a vision? We had an idea and the vision is gene therapies, first, best, and only in class with clear unmet need and a relatively quick regulatory path. So there are a few tenets, philosophical tenets by which we were building our pipeline, great set of investors, and then me. And I have no experience doing any company building. So at first, what I did is I called people I knew in the field, Dr. Jonathan Schwartz, who I'd worked with since Imclone days, and Dr. Kinnery Patel, who... I had known for quite some time as a regulatory and development wizard, an industry force who had worked on numerous rare diseases. I called them, they were friends. And I said, hey, I'm going to go do this, but I can't do it alone. Do you want to try it out? So there was that 
loyalty and friendship and trust that help generate some momentum. It's hard to start a company without those personal relationships. It's very hard to start from scratch. You need to stick together. So I think that was all new to me. This team has stuck together from the beginning, and I'm very proud of it. My philosophy now at Rocket has always been is that you invest in people and you empower and make them care as much as you do about the business. It's not that you put work first, you put people first, and you invest in a person beyond a particular job. The other side of it is that investors just want you to get stuff done. So that constant balance and tug of war, that is the job. How do you get what investors need with the people that you have while keeping everybody motivated and inspired? And the way to do that, I think, is by sharing this common vision continuously. Absolutely. You alluded to the fact that you guys had likely this shorter arc with respect to the regulatory environment. And biopharma tends to be challenging in this respect because it often takes years to develop therapies and then to get them cleared by the FDA and well beyond. Can you talk about how you've maintained patience through that, how you guys have been able to subvert that challenge and also just the progress you've made? Yeah, the patient stories and patient journeys have been an integral part of our work from day one. Myself, the whole management team, since the early days, we've gone to patient retreats. For example, there's a retreat called Camp Sunshine for Fanconi anemia patients that happens in Maine. We've gone there in the first few years, every year, got to know families, hear real stories, talk to the physicians who are treating these patients. So that's always been an integral part of our being. We've taken patients to the FDA to tell their own stories. There's no better educator than a patient who's gone through a journey where they were potentially going to pass away and now are living what looked to be healthy and normal lives. The pipeline itself, so we now have two therapeutic areas that we focus on. One is hematology. We work on diseases with bone marrow as the cause of the genetic disorder. The other one is cardiac as the cause of genetic disorder. So the bone marrow are diseases are Fanconi anemia, pyruvate deficiency, leukocyte adhesion deficiency one. We may add others in the future. The cardiac portfolio right now is Dannon disease and PKP2. We don't have to go through all the details, but we have two therapeutic areas, two types of different gene therapies for them. The bone marrow, we use something called ex vivo lenti. And for the cardiac, we use in vivo AAV, right? These are two different modalities of gene therapy. The idea here is that you repurpose a virus. In the case of lenti, it's a repurposed inactivated HIV virus, which we know proliferates massively. And the AAV is the virus that we use for the cardiac program, which is also a virus that we're all exposed to, but this is repurposed. And the repurposed like a rocket, the virus is like a rocket and person in a rocket is like the payload of gene therapy. What we do is that we insert a correct version of the missing gene in these patients into this virus and then insert the virus into either the bloodstream or the bone marrow. And it finds its way to the the correct cells, either the bone marrow or the heart, and replicates and the virus gets into the cells. That's what viruses do. And then the the patients have a working copy of the gene. So that's the technology itself. If you've seen Jurassic Park, the most recent one, the Dominion one, I forgot the name. Oh, I forgot the name of the recent one. I saw it with my boy. And in that movie, it's funny because they talk about how the the holy grail, so to speak, of getting gene therapy to work and getting into enough cells was this one girl that you have to harness her cells because that was a secret to gene therapy. But it's already been going on. It already works. They should have called different advisors. Maybe I I don't know what the issue was, but it already works, right? And we're getting this gene therapy into more than enough cells to be transformative. And just one example, there was was a boy with Dannon disease. Dannon disease is a disease of the heart that kills boys by the age of 19 or 20. It's devastating. And they start being tired and going to heart failure in their tween and teenage years. This was an 11 or 12-year-old boy who every year was going trick-or-treating in a wagon because he couldn't walk. He got this gene therapy, and I would say about a year later, at the next Halloween, he was running from door to door. 
And after two hours, still wasn't tired. This is a story, by the way, that we've shared with regulatory agencies as well. And that's the power of gene therapy. It can really transform life in a very fundamental way. So this is, I can't get excited enough about it or show enough excitement. It's certainly, it's a little bit hard on, on audio, but the excitement, not just with me, but the group here at Rocket and everyone we work with is so palpable because we're just cracking the door open right now with these couple of rare disease conditions. But the possibilities to go even beyond rare disease and ultimately tackle more complex genetic diseases like Alzheimer's and others is there. I appreciate the analogy used with the rocket and the payload because it's clearly an ode to your name. And I I was going to ask about that. It's very interesting. Another piece of this that I'm interested about, I mean, you've talked about the ways in which you've used patient stories as an educator, particularly for regulatory agencies. But I feel like part of the challenge in this industry is sometimes it gets a bad rap, and especially as it relates to conversations around drug pricing and, of course, the broader conversation around U.S. healthcare. Do you approach your work differently with knowledge of that perception in mind? Yeah. We're not commercial yet, just to be clear. We will be potentially as early as next year. Right now, we're in drug development. We're in R&D mode, but we will launch these programs starting with the bone marrow-derived disorder soon. And this will be an ongoing dialogue. I think that these therapies are expensive and they're expensive to to develop, whether you're a small company or a large company. The alternative to these therapies, however, is even more expensive, which is death. When you're tackling devastating rare diseases where the only option is the option that you're providing, those are value-based conversations that we're just starting to engage in now. So we'll comment more on that as we get closer to it. Access is important. We certainly don't want to create a field and a landscape where only patients in certain countries get this therapy. We want to be able to have patients around the world have access. Obviously, I'm from South Asia, and I would love to bring this and make it accessible in South Asia and beyond. We have to start here. We have to start in the U.S. We have to start in certain European countries, maybe Japan, and then move beyond. It's a stage-wise process. If we move too fast, we won't be able to sustain a business. And if you don't sustain a business, you can't actually get access at the next level, right? So it's, it's a step-by-step sure. process. If you look at the bigger companies, though, like Novartis, there's a gene therapy called Zolgensma that treats spinal muscular atrophy type 1. It's life-saving. These patients live until age 13.6 months. And now most of those patients have been treated with the Novartis therapy are now walking or living and some are out several years. Now Novartis has a way to get that therapy into several dozen countries around the world beyond the US and Europe. So it happens in time, but we have to go step by step. Makes a lot of sense. Another piece of this is Rocket Pharma. And you talked about how initially when you joined, you played this role of CEO and CFO. Today, you guys are publicly traded on the NASDAQ, which I imagine comes with a different type of access to capital than typical biotech VC, but also a greater level of scrutiny. Can you tell us what it's been like to lead a public company? I would say access to capital is never easy because every penny we take seriously and you always want to draw down from demand in a thoughtful way so that you're bringing in hopefully long-term supporters and long-term investors. Whether you're private or public, those philosophical tenets don't change that much. We're lucky to have a very strong infrastructure on the GNA side, legal, finance, policy, general compliance. We're SOX compliant now. And that team it really keeps together a lot of complexity so that our scientists and physicians can do the work that's important for the business. How has it been running a public company? Frankly, it didn't feel that different running a public company versus when we were Series A and then Series B. The thing with the CEO job is that you don't necessarily have one boss, you have a thousand bosses. There's eight other board members who are my boss. There are numerous heavily invested investors who are my boss. And the patients are the ultimate boss and the patient's families. And there's an accountability to all of these groups, right? I feel like for me, the key to unlocking my own motivation was to think of myself as a servant CEO, right? I'm here Mm. for someone other than me, whether it's patients or investors who are 
taking risks because they believe in me. Or it's a board, and I, I love the board. It's a really unique board because it's tight and close-knit, and there's a few investors on it and a few operational folks on there. But being a public company CEO has been made much more easy because we have a great set of board members and a great set of investors, I would say, and they've let us just do our thing and, and try to find cures and create value. Absolutely. It's interesting because you came into this, obviously, with the medical perspective, but immersed yourself in the business side. I feel that I have a lot of peers today who are in medical school, but don't see clinical practice as their end outcome, see themselves going into industry, policy experts, founders, on paths not dissimilar to yours. What advice do you have for that? My advice is don't be afraid to take risks especially when the path is the hard path and do what you love and do it with people that you really respect and, and love working with. The rest will follow. Yeah. I think trying to fit ourselves into someone else's vision of success leads to potentially many years of pain and struggle that you don't need to go through. I would also say that generation to generation, what my parents thought would make this generation happy was only part of the solution. And what we think is going to make the next generation happy is probably just going to be part of the solution, not the whole solution. I think that's a very beautiful way of framing it. And also leads me to the dualities I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, which is in that your own path is not cookie cutter. And for you, success hasn't fit into this very tight-knit box you have this whole other half of your story, which is your story in music. And it began in a residency when you made your true foray into music inspired by your wife, who is a classically trained singer. Can you tell us how you stepped back into this world and how your work in music has inspired your work in medicine and vice versa? Yeah. So, so like I said earlier, I had uh, grown up with Indian classical music and Kishore Kumar and Guns N' Roses in, in Texas. It's a weird way to grow up, I guess. It was a fun way, but it, it was being exposed to so many different cultures and intersections. And But the Indian classical music obsession started, I would say, in middle school for me when uh, a teacher by the name of Ronu Mujumdar came and stayed in Fort Worth, Texas for three months. He's now a super famous flute player in, in India. And at the time, he was up and coming, but amazing. I just started obsessively practicing first flute and then singing. And it became like what I thought about day and night. In my medical wow. school interview at Columbia, my interviewer asked me, he said, what do you think about all day? And I said, frankly, I think about Indian musical notes. I just, that, that was my answer. I never hid that from anyone. I've just been always very transparent about it. So they've been two parallel threads that have been, that have intertwined and crossed and uh, over time. I took a year off to learn Indian classical music. That's where I met Falu many years ago. And at the same time, I had a band called Karishma. We made a CD and the joke is that we always said that it would end up on someone's shelf. And <laughs> I don't think, even think it's on anyone's shelf anymore, but it was, it was a great labor of love. And that was the beginning of the music career. And then Falu started her own band and I joined her band along with several of my friends that I worked with for years. And that gave me and us a vehicle to really explore the Indian classical world. Probably did a thousand concerts together between uh, the year 2000 and now. Wow. And just kept working. And these parallel threads fed each other. As stressful as medical school or residency or Novartis and certainly Rocket are. Rocket's the most stressful out of all of them, right? My experiences. <laughs> the ability to step away for an evening and perform and not just perform music that we love, but really connect with an audience at what I think is an equally deep level as medicine, which is music, right? Medicine is the deepest level of, especially gene therapy, the deepest level of physical beings we are. In the same way, music, I think, connects soul to soul. There's a statement that was said by my teacher's teacher. My, my teacher's name who passed away was Ustad Sultan Khan. His teacher's name was Ustad Amir Khan. Amir Khan used to say, Nagma vohe jaha ru gai or ru sune. Music is that in which the soul sings and the soul listens. Direct connection between two souls. 
So an audience is as much a part of your music as the performer. That's the whole Sufi concept. There is no listener. There is no performer. It all becomes an experience. And doing that, this whole medical journey just gave me perspective and a way to step back and bring sort of a fresh creative mind to whatever I was doing in my day job. And I've said this elsewhere. I feel like it's a used analogy because I say it all the time, but the reality is that running a company is not that different from running a band. You want to hire people who are better than you, who you admire. And the best moments in an orchestra or a band are times when you're in the middle of it and you can put your instrument down because it's so amazing. You don't have to sing. You you just, you're listening. And that's the creation, the band, you created the band, right? But it doesn't mean you have to always play the instrument or sing. It's just the creation. The same way in a company, we had a meeting actually yesterday with 35 people working on a submission for Fanconi Anemia, one of the bone marrow programs. And I said almost nothing. And it was like a beautiful orchestra. I actually texted my <laughs> head of HR and I said, oh, this feels like we've arrived. I don't have to do anything. There's a lot of wow. similarities there for sure as well. It's incredible to hear the ways in which it sounds like music has been a reprieve for you, but also plays so much into the same way that you exercise these philosophies and behaviors, both in medicine and in the work you do at Rocket, while also playing in your band. I know you both, you and your wife, started writing music also for your son around the themes of navigating two cultures, which you experienced growing up. In 2019, your shared album, Follows Bazaar, was nominated for a Grammy. And in 2022, your shared album, A Colorful World, actually won the Grammy for Best Children's Album, which is absolutely incredible. How did it feel to win one of the music industry's most prestigious awards? Yeah, I became quiet for two or three hours. I was just at ease, (laughs) at peace, and I felt like I could breathe and just be here on this planet and just listen and be, just be, right? It was an amazing experience. Yeah, it started with with our son who just wanted to understand why he looked different from other people and why his food looked different and why his food was yellow and tasted different. And and Falu came home one day, or I came home one day and and I I saw them singing this song and on piano. And I said, oh, that's an album. We should make an album here. It was just, it was a random idea. But each song came alive and we randomly submitted it to the Grammys and they picked it up. And then um, wow, I think the nation is at a place where this is not an unusual experience, right? Many of us look different, talk different. I mean, New York is 50% non-traditional ethnicities, right? Not everyone here speaks English at home. In fact, you go to Queens, you hear something like 200 languages on the street or 174. Something Absolutely. Like so I think this really resonated with the folks who were running the Grammys in those days. But the joy for us was creating the music. Like I said, originally, the purpose of Indian classical music is not to perform and not to learn complexity, but to learn simplicity and find that one moment where you hit that one note and that becomes your moment of peace while on this earth. Wow. An amazing accomplishment. And I want to spend another second on that idea of belonging. And also to your point that this is a point where we're at in our nation's history and the cultural zeitgeist. In music and medicine, you straddle these two worlds that are clearly interconnected. But being at the Grammys is something else in its entirety, especially as immigrants, children of immigrants. Have you ever compared the sense of belonging you feel as a doctor or where South Asians are often expected to be versus in music or at a place like the Grammys where we are clearly underrepresented? Yeah, South Asians are uh, trailblazing in so many different areas <laughs> for sure, right? I think you mentioned earlier that there's there are few traditional paths, including medicine and engineering, that many of our parents were. And they've been so grateful for the struggles and they had a sense of making sure that we're anchored in pragmatism. And there's no way that I would have the guts, to use the gut word, or the risk-taking mindset to leave a big company and go out on my own and try to start a company, or to think that, oh, why should we submit this album for a Grammy, right? I think that it's an evolving mindset. And you see more and more folks from South Asia and other ethnicities 
moving beyond those traditional jobs. Absolutely. I would say that in the music field, the win was the year before last. The year that I was there watching everything, there were at least two other South Asians who won that year and were on stage. I mean, it's, it's, this is not new anymore, not just in music, obviously in, in films. I have a lot of friends in both film and music who are super, super successful, have large followings and are, are really out there in the same way that at some point Axl Rose once was. <laughs> it's obviously happened in England with Queen, who, you know, the lead singer there is a Gujarati guy originally, Yep. but it's happening in the US too. You see it. I think it's amazing and it's just going to continue. As we get more comfortable that we've been anchored in pragmatic reality, I think more and more of us are going to start venturing out to do things that come more and more from the heart and gut. Absolutely. I think many of us owe that to people like you who are willing to take those risks and step out of the zones where we've traditionally seen our company in. So that's a big thank you and note of gratitude to you. And you, and you. You're another example as well. So I appreciate that. It's easy to surmise that in hearing your story, and I know this is something that you like to talk about a lot, that you are both left and right brained in equal measure. And I know this is, like I said, a topic you have a deeper philosophy on. Do you mind sharing that credo and just how it's played out in your own pursuits? Yeah. Traditionally, the left side is supposed to be the rational, logical side. The right side is supposed to be the creative, feeling and artistic side. There's different ways to slice that. In reality, what we're learning between left and right brain is that it's a lot more complex than that. There's a lot more left brain and right brain and right brain and left brain, and they interact in a much more cohesive way than we ever thought before. Just basic neuroscience, right? But just making those separations, I feel like you don't have to be your left or right brain person. I think that you don't have to think of yourself that way. A musician doesn't have to think of themselves as right brain because the complexities of music require as much logic as the complexities of gene therapy. I've done both and I can attest to that. It's as hard to follow or try to follow, which is I can't do, it's impossible to follow an Ustad Amir Khan Tan, a run of notes, and even understand what he's doing, but he's doing it from the left brain. He's a musician, but what he's doing is based on academic rigor and intense thinking. At the same time, it's obviously music, so there's a right brain element of it, but to create that complexity in Indian classical music is equally left and right brain. In the same way, there are moments in studying the science of gene therapy where you have to stop thinking and you have to to feel. And Interesting. once you have all your vector designs down on a paper and which vector is going to be the best one for this disease, there has to be a moment of just freeing your mind from the thinking and letting go. I don't want to make it too cheesy, but it's like the, um, the Star Wars line, you let go of your feelings. You must unlearn what you've learned and then make the right decision. And you see that in gene therapy just as much as you do in music. Yeah. It's actually not that different. There's an artificial divide, and I don't think there's really a divide there. Yeah. And I think you've done away with that divide in this conversation. So again, kudos to you for that. The last question I have for you is, what else can we look forward to seeing from you on both the medical and music fronts? So on the medical front, we're going to keep building Rocket Pharma. Rocket Pharma is a position. It is one of the leading gene therapy companies in the world. We want to make it the gene therapy company. So if there is genetic disorder to solve, it's something that we want to get involved with. We want to grow the company. We're about 270, 280 people now, two or three different sites with a pipeline of six programs. We want to, that's just the beginning. There are, like I said earlier, hundreds of thousands, actually millions of patients with rare disease that we can address over time. And that's just rare disease. Beyond rare disease, there's non-rare disease. And ultimately, all disease either has an infectious cause, a genetic cause, which can be very complex. And you know, a lot of genetic factors weigh even to heart disease or accident as a cause. 
right? So those are the three big buckets. So we can take one of those buckets out completely with this gene therapy revolution, which is just beginning. So I think Rocket, as a leader in that field, can really pave the way for a future of our species that's very different from the past of our species. That's Rocket. On the music side, we're making a new album. It's not a children's album and more to come on that soon. We continue to perform and I'm very nostalgic about those days when we did Methville is the social gathering, usually the yep. intimate gathering of family and friends. And you have these musical experiences, which are spiritual experiences. And I miss those days. It doesn't happen as much anymore. I think people are less interested in guzzle and Indian classical compared with a long time ago. But that's something that we're going to start resurrecting soon as well. Wow. It's so funny that you say that because my dad started a group here in Atlanta called Mayfill and they gather oh, wow. once every few months to listen to guzzle and Sufi music with all their friends. And it's the big event of every few months. So I love hearing that because I, I hope it's something our generations and future generations keep up as well. My parents also live in Atlanta. So I, we should connect after and see if, yeah. you know, see if we should connect. <laughs> but our, our parents continue to have so much to teach us. So for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gaur, thank you so much for being here and taking the time to share your story. Like I said, it's amazing to see the lines you've drawn between music and medicine that I don't think a lot of us think of on a day-to-day basis. And uh, looking forward to seeing you win your next Grammy. Thank you so much for this opportunity to think about the context. It's, it's always fun. And I really enjoyed this particular conversation, Simi. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.